I'm now in my 30th year working to restore nature in forests and on farms, mostly across the north of England. 30 years ago I left the city and my old job behind. I hung up my suit and tie and went off to plant trees. It's a decision I've never regretted. I'm Pete Leeson. Welcome to Tree Amble Podcast. This is a podcast about people and farming and trees and nature and how we could all do much better. Hello and welcome to the Treeamble podcast. This is episode 10 and the last of series one. In this episode, I talked with Catherine and Tim about their project at Kingsdale Head in Yorkshire. They bought this large upland farm the month we went into lockdown, which made for an interesting start. Since then, they have employed a site manager, restored over 250 hectares of peat and started conservation grazing with native breed cattle. Both Catherine and Tim are passionate about nature and climate issues and want this farm to help with creating ways forward for our landscape. I really hope you enjoy this edition 10 of the Treeamble podcast. So good morning, Catherine and Tim. Um, I've come up to Kingsdale Head, which is not far from Ingleton. And uh, you are, what, are you rewilders or are you... Extensive farmers, or what are you? I suppose that we're often very careful in our language, given yeah. we're right in the middle of sheep country. Um, but what we are is just passionate about seeing more species and variety in the landscape, having having an environment around us which is a bit more, a lot more natural. Yeah. And Kingsdale Head is right at the top of. Uh, a valley, one of the dales, Kingsdale, as the name suggests. And it's full of water, you know, we lots of rainfall, this part of the country, lots of wonderful streams. Um, it's been grazed by sheep for 200 years and that's had a big impact. Um, so what are we? We're just enthusiasts about getting more life in the landscape. And I suppose the approach we're taking is what's now labelled rewilding. People do get hung up on this word, don't yeah. they? And, and so we don't really need to give it a word, do we? You're just you're farming differently in an upland setting. Yes, we are. And I think I do find the terminology a bit challenging sometimes because there's so much to be inspired by the rewilding movement, but it also does get a response from uh, dif different responses from different people yeah and that's not helpful no. whereas when you talk about nature very few people respond badly yeah. to a richer natural environment so that's so let's so we're talking aiming for a richer natural environment on this space mm -hmm. um, but let's go back a wee bit because um, our first meeting was essentially on the on the telephone I got back from a day out and I got this message from both of you yeah um, saying we want to buy some land and can we talk about it 
which I think was you, Tim, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Well, a speculative call, yeah. I think, um, which is often the way that I work, and I think you do as well. <laughs> yeah. So it kind of worked quite nicely. We had a bit of a meeting of minds. Um, yeah, so we said we wanted to, you know, having been involved in some other projects elsewhere in other, other places, and Catherine obviously works in, well, obvious to you because you know this, but um, works in the environment sector and has done for the last eight years, and I've always been involved. We wanted to put something back, really, and actually do something at some scale that we thought would have an impact. So we started looking at where was the best place to do that. You know, we were looking at, we started looking then at upland farms, um, so degraded land in areas where they, they were not agriculturally particularly productive, mm. or not now. Yes, and so the call was to um, to yourself, really, mm. to say, you know, what I'd seen some stuff on, you know, literally web browsing, talking to agents, looking around, and your name was given to me as somebody who would be able to help, and actually, you did. So we <laughs> well, what, yeah, one of our challenges was we'd seen the, an upland farm, yeah. we'd seen Kingsdale Head, we knew it had potential, but we had no idea what we were, what yeah. the what difference we could make. Yeah. Uh, in an upland landscape, we didn't know what a future landscape might look mm. like with more nature in it. So I think we came here before we bought it. I mean, we met up mm. on the farm with mm. um, one of your friends from Natural England, and um, you know, it was it was a real inspiration for us actually to walk across and actually see what you could do, mm. and have your you know your combined experience telling us exactly what wasn't here. And I think that's one of the big things that when you come you know, relatively uneducated and unprepared for these landscapes, you look at what's, you know, you look at the landscape with the lens that you've got, which yeah. is the way it looks. And so it was really interesting to have, you know, you and Nigel at the time to go across and say, you know, you haven't got this, you haven't got this, you know, you should have more of this. That, you know, there's, these things are missing. You've got lots of this. <laughs> um, so, I mean, something I've talked about with other people recently is is reading the landscape. Yeah. It's actually going into a landscape and trying to understand what you've got and what you haven't got. And that's a big thing, I think, for the rewilding movement is actually saying, well, look, we've lost so much from the landscape. What and how do we get back to to where we, we might expect to have been at some point in history? Yeah. And that's a big ask when you don't really know what's, what you've lost. Yeah. No, it isn't. I mean, we're sort of all a similar age and we've grown up in a period of, you know, huge industrialisation of, of our farmland, which has had some incredible benefits in terms of uh, production, but the impact on wildlife has been devastating. But we've, we've grown up with that changing landscape that we think is normal. Um, and I think... The, you know, the great credit to the rewilding movement is it's really questioned what's normal mm. and made people think about, actually, what have we lost? And we have lost so much. Mm. And it's interesting, I talk about normalising um, in, in all sorts of things. For example, recycling. You know, when we were young, we didn't recycle anything. And then we had that challenging period where recycling became a bit trendy and people said, oh, well, I recycle it. Well, great. But you've got to normalise it. You have got to go to a space where it's the normal thing to do. Just as yeah. maybe saving lights by turning lights off, that's normalising behaviour. And we've normalised a landscape around a simplified landscape with no wildlife. And that's now what we expect. And when you see a bird, it's, oh, it's a bird. When you realise there used to be 40 million of them, <laughs> there's yeah. now 4 million or whatever, that's a shock. 
So trying to change that is, is massive. It's a big problem, though, isn't it, with industrialisation of any process. Yeah. Um, so we've industrialised farming, and along with everything, everything else we do, it's done for maximum you know, productive gain, economic gain. And so you know, we look at, I suppose, Kingsale as a place where that model was beginning, it really wasn't working because these farms are not really making money. Um, you know, they're subsidised by what was the Common Agriculture Policy, BPS payments, and without that, they wouldn't be making. They wouldn't be here. And actually, Kingsale had, in a sense, is a very good place to think about change because actually, it was really in the modern context not going to stand up on its own two Correct. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So let's describe Kingsale. We've mentioned it a couple of times. What What is Kingsale Head Farm? Oh well, it's truly upland. Yeah. So uh, part of our um, perimeter is just underneath, tucked underneath Wernside, which is the highest peak. I think it's about... 720 metres. 720 metres. And the farmhouse is at 340. So we're truly upland. There's virtually no flat piece of land on Kingsdale. So the farmhouse and there's a road that winds up through the valley are on the valley floor. And... uh, then hills rise up on either side. So one side on one side, Gregareth on the other. And two-thirds of it is peatland. Mm-hmm. And so that's, just to put it into context, that's, it's a, it's a, the site is 1,500 acres, as you know, and it's 1,000 acres, roughly, is peatland. So we don't really have what many people think of as a farm. We have very few fields of grass. We mm-hmm. have two right next to the farmhouse, which are more normal grazing, but even they are nowhere near flat. Um, no. they're, they're and they're a tiny proportion of the overall farm. Absolutely. So yeah. from a farming perspective, you have a very small area of good grass. The rest is very poor grazing. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, and the moorland, um, which is extensive, um, and then beyond the moorland we have some shale slopes right at the top, which are a different environment yet again. Um, but the moorland is sort of crossed by streams which come down from the top of the hills. So we have these really steep little valleys oh, that the, the streams and um, run through, uh, which are, again, yet another little habitat. You know, they're more sheltered, the soil is a bit drier because they're mm. drained. You've got these rocky bottoms. Um, and... So it feels like a very wild landscape, actually. Mm. It's not what many people would think of as a farm. Mm. Um, The great thing for us is it's a single piece of land, so we can, in a way, manage it as one extensive piece of land. Um, We've got a dry stone perimeter wall, which is a real challenge. So seven and a half miles around. A wall, which is all ours. Um, (laughs) Our neighbours, unfortunately, don't own any of it. (laughs) So that's a a big challenge, because... I guess we'll get on to this, but in terms of managing the animals that come onto the land, which is more of an issue for us, rather than the ones getting out of it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we've got a... But we, we do have a big, and it's a phrase that I've learnt from you, really, Pete, but, you know, we do have a real mosaic of habitats, or potential mosaic, because we do have some woodland and some scrubland, and we have you know, these valleys, multiple um, you know, um, gills that come down, and the peatland, and then you know, these sort of upland montane areas as well. So there is a real sort of mix of habitats here. Um, so from a, let's let's use that word again. The re, from the rewilding yeah. perspective, and I'm only using that because I can't think of another word mm. that suits. But from a rewilding perspective, we have a lump of land that has been farmed 
quite intensively with sheep in recent history, yeah. though not very recent, because the, the farmer prior to you had started to reduce the stock numbers. But nevertheless, it was a sheep holding for a long time. Um, and when we arrived, we saw the potential of those mosaic habitats, but they weren't expressing themselves fully. Yeah. And I suppose the rewilding thing is to try and, try and max out on those different mosaic habitats to get the best out of all of them, whether it's from a wildflower perspective or a water perspective or whatever we're trying to get out of it. And we've only got a glimpse at the moment of what they look like. Well, part of what we did you know, when we got here was we started off doing a lot of surveys. So, you know, we've engaged to do, you mentioned wildflowers, wildflower mm. surveys, we have birds, bees, bats, um, yeah, a whole flora fauna spectrum, um, you know, much of which you've funded as mm. well, um, so, and, and, and ongoing as well. And that's been really important to us to actually find out what we've got and what all the changes are. And it's part of the future programme, really, for Kingstead is being able to measure all, all of this mm. stuff so that we can actually get some economic value out of it as well longer term um so but it, what has been evidence we're three years into this now almost exactly since well, we you bought, you bought, bought it, it the week the week we went into lockdown didn't that's we? right that was yeah. quite challenging we bought it yeah it's the 6th of april um of 2020 yeah. <laughs> i think we exchanged on the valentine's day i think it was of that year so we were writing covid and lockdown um we didn't actually get out so i'm segueing a bit here but we didn't actually get really we came Catherine and i did come up for various reasons you know around the farm but Michael and Stephanie the previous owners who've been here for 50 odd years um they weren't in a position to be able to move so they carried on living here until yeah. November of that year um so you know it was a great transition really we had a really good relationship with them we were able to find out what they what had happened historically um and learn a bit from them about how and learn from, exactly yeah. and what had happened and Michael had obviously this huge you know knowledge base of what the land was like but going back to yeah this point i mean so we had something which had had originally you know 650 plus sheep then michael had been in an hls high level stewardship scheme for nine years we took over the last year down to 160 sheep so a big difference there are some planted woodland areas here that have been put down about 10 odd years ago wooden grant schemes yeah which had been, you know, mixed success. We might talk about that later. But um, what's good about those has been useful is as a fence. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fence line has really shown the di- you know showed the difference of the pre, you know, three, us taking it over three years ago, mm-hmm. um, and you could see the sort of you know, the amount of regrowth of things like the bilberry etc. within the enclosures, mm-hmm. even though the trees hadn't done brilliantly, and lots of the other um, vegetation vegetation has. Um, but actually, what was also recognisable since the days when we first walked across it with you is this this enormous increase in the amount of growth on the rest of the land now that we don't have the sheep on there. And I guess we haven't mentioned that we don't have any sheep at all. No. <laughs> so, I was going to get to that. Yeah. So, but you're not, not farming it because you have actually got um, some cattle. We've got some galloways, yeah. Um, and I suppose one of the things, I mean, we ended up having long chats with you, with Nigel Pilling from Natural England with various other advisors just about how much you nudge the system and how much you let it do its thing. Mm. We know from places like NEP where um, there's still great seed source around where you've got a long growing season that things bounce back really fast. But we're in the uplands where our growing season's much shorter. Mm-hmm. You know, we've, we're here today, there's, it's beautiful but there's a really high wind. 
Um, we have long cold winter, it's very wet. Um, so we knew the whole process was going to take longer. And we also knew that we were lacking some of the species you'd expect to see. I mean, completely lacking. Hmm. Um, so we have no willow on site, no, yeah. no hazel on site. Um, despite the archaeological record showing that hazel was a major, a major plant here. Well, that was one of the lovely things to find. That when, when we, um, one of the things that Michael, the previous farmer, gave to us was an archaeological survey that had been done on the site, and it involved looking at fire pits mm. from the Bronze Age, mm. and you could see the species of wood they were burning, uh, which are the species we'd expect to see, but weren't here any mm. longer. Um, so, I think yeah, we. We had this long debate at the time, and I think that where we came out was that we needed to nudge in some places. So we needed to bring some of those tree and shrub species back in. And then the other nudge was the livestock and grazing. Yeah. And that's why we've got Rigged Galloways. So you're ranging those cattle, there's very few cattle yeah. in a big area, yeah. and managing that. And I noticed they've got collars on. What are those collars about? Well, that's about... They're called no-fence collars, and people who understand GPS technology, they send a signal that tells us where those cattle are uh, every half an hour or so. Um, plus, we can use the collar to actually set a boundary on where they graze. Um, so we're doing that for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is we have really big field areas, uh, and field areas where we've done a little bit of planting of shrubs mm -hmm. um, and at times we may want to just keep the cattle off those areas to give those shrubs a chance to actually get take root um, but actually in a way one of the more important aspects for us has been that we've been able to see monitor over now just over a year where they graze mm -hmm. so we can see how they move around the landscape and this is really, really important. One, because I think we know that there are, there are concerns about, you know, our cattle damaging to peatland. And from what we've seen so far, the cattle don't really want to be on peatland. They're heavy animals. They don't want to be on soft, wet mm. ground. And the food they eat is not there. They want grasses that are not on the peatland. Um, so we're now able to see... Um, and we're collecting that data, continuing to collect the data, just exactly how they graze. Mm. Um, and that's giving us lots of information then on being able to see the areas that they should be having impact and then monitoring that going forward. And that data is important to you, but are you sharing that data with other people? Yeah, we do. So, um, Jamie, our, the conservation farm manager here, has actually put together a report fairly, fairly you know, last year um, on the first full amount of data we had from a year of, a year of grazing, and it's um, so it's published. Um, with you know our ideas, we'll try and be as transparent as possible and share everything good and bad, because um, it may be that you know cattle were a really bad idea to have mm. on the land, but in fact so far it's proven to be other otherwise. Um, so yeah, that that stuff's available to anybody who either follows Jamie, looks at our website, or um, mm. is prepared to go on to you know things like LinkedIn etc. So the joy for me of the of the wilding movement and regenerative farming is that people are sharing openly their experiences Yeah. and it seems to me as though you're adding into that that breadth of knowledge I, in I, a slightly different setting. Yeah I see that as a really important thing because you know what we 
yeah, our intended outcomes, which is to improve you know, the nature and diversity and the carbon capture, which we haven't talked about really so much, but the, you know, the, the carbon sequestration part of this land is really important. So we need to make sure that what we're doing is, is good mm-hmm. when working, mm-hmm. rather than actually maybe it's, there are unintended consequences. So hence why the data management matters and hence why we need to be quite clear and open about what we're, sh- what we're doing. Because mm-hmm. yeah, we may find... Uh, unlikely in my mind, but sort of the peat restoration, which we haven't talked about yet, but we may find it it's a bad thing to do. But I mean, yeah, I'm very confident it's a good thing to do, but we need to actually also have the data to prove that it's a good thing to yeah. do. Yeah. Um, or where it works better in some, some certain landscapes and less well in other landscapes. Yeah. Well, bringing cattle back to the hills has definitely been something which um, the conservation side have, have, have really voted for yeah. significantly yes, a lot in recent of, years. I mean, Geltsdale is, is a classic example. And we've got Sally Hempsall, who's, who's managing yeah. her cattle up on Ingleborough. You know, it's something we've been doing. But I'm fascinated by the data that's coming out of things like the no-fence collar system. Because mm. you can actually show where they go, where they want to hang up, both in terms of a day regime but also over, over a cycle of a year that's right and and you see I mean, the way it maps you can see the grazing densities in certain areas so it's really clear you can I mean, you can track each each collar mm. you know so you can actually see where each one but i mean as herd animals they tend to stick together but you can really see you know, is evidentially sort of all of the grazing density so you can see that they're eating the millennia grass for example in a certain area mm. or in fact you know they've transitioned across some sort of wetter peatier bog areas to get to something else I mean, at the moment, Pete, they're right up on the top of the hill over behind us, which I think you knew. But I mean, you know, in a, they found some grass. Yeah. And so, it, what's yeah, we can see it visually. But the great thing is, on a big site like this, we can actually, you know, really understand exactly where they graze most. So, you know, if rewilding, in its in its broader sense, is about going back to nature, bringing back natural process, you really want your cows to be as natural as possible. Yeah. So, in a sense, what this is revealing is is them managing the land for you because they want to go on certain spots at certain times of the year. I wonder how then that the extension of that is when, when in 50 years' time, yeah. perhaps when we've got more scrub plants back and maybe more trees and different species because we've seeded those species in, what they'll be browsing on and where they'll be in that place. But will that have changed, do we think? Oh, gosh, I'm sure it would have done. Mm. Um, I think one of the slightly unnerving things about taking a rewilding approach is you're not specifically managing for a for an outcome mm. we don't know really what this is going to look like in 50 years time we've got an idea yeah and we we we're pretty confident about perhaps some areas what they might look like but actually we don't know um and but i think one thing we can be confident there'll be far there'll be a different mix of trees and shrubs you know we'll have you know, the blackthorns, the hawthorns, um, will have a wider range of trees. Uh, there'll be more shelter, far more shelter. I mean, one of the lovely things about watching the cattle is when you just let them do their thing, you know, when the weather's bad, they find shelter. Mm. And how many cattle spend their life in a field where there is no shelter? Mm. Um, you know, and in this landscape, which is can be pretty wild and it cold, can be rough. Yeah. Yep. they need to be able to get shelter. Yeah. Um, but yeah I'm sure it's going to look well I hope it is going to look completely different Um, and there are going to be some areas where there's a lot of shrub and trees and then there's going to be the moorland which is hopefully going to be really squidgy Mm. quite wet and the cattle will probably rarely Mm. stray up onto it 
So in a sense, we're talking about management decisions, aren't we? So, so there's a whole series of decisions that people in the past have taken about management of land for an outcome. You're also taking management decisions, mm. but you're, the, the decision tree is a different tree, isn't it, that you're based on? Oh, definitely. And the funny, I mean, I think the interesting thing is our, our manager, Jamie McEwen, is much younger than us. His time horizon is much longer. Mm. And yes, he's much more willing to do the let nature take, take mm. its course. And we're a bit impatient. We want to see some change and we have a shorter lifespan ahead of us. <laughs> um, but it is debating that how much of a nudge and how much do you leave? Yeah. So, thinking about management, your, your previous life before Kingsdale, you've had quite long lives, you're the same age as me so I can say that, <laughs> um, what, what brought you to this point? Because you've, you've invested a lot of time and now money into this site, you're employing somebody to look after it for you, um, they're doing some fantastic things. Um, why? What made, you, what made you do that? I th- I, ultimately, I probably need to give credit to Tim in terms of um, <laughs> us actually being here because Tim is much more impulsive and also much more of a person who'll take a leap of faith. Right. Uh, I'm much more of a planner. Um, but in terms of, I think, the process that got us to that point, I think it just happened over lots of years in terms of we've we both love being outdoors, we both like the environment. Hmm. And we're, we're not from a farming background. We've dabbled with the idea many years ago about stuff like this. So we've always been quite engaged with you know, nature as such. Um, I mean, you know, one of the things I've mentioned, yeah, I've, yeah, I was a member of Greenpeace in the Save the Whales days you yeah, know, from yeah. the beginning. So um, it's... Yeah, my background though, I mean, yeah, where I met Catherine was in finance. Yeah, so my background is in you know, in the city in London and, uh, you know, did that for quite a long time, but decided after 20 odd years, 25 years that I'd done enough of that and wanted to do something different. So I, uh, yeah, I left, Catherine had left some years before. Um, and I think it was really driven by seeing the amount of, you know, thinking that we can actually do something. Um, and I, I yeah, the, the Wilding book when it came out was, really helpful and quite an inspiration we've been to that you know to see what was going on we've met with you know the the team i guess at, at net um and one of the questions i'd asked them actually you know um was is this ridiculous to us to even think about this because yeah. we don't know anything i mean we had quite a lot of knowledge about nature and conservancy yeah. in some level but you know we didn't we don't really know anything about this and you know, the answer I got back was very much, well, this is very different. You know, obviously, we're not trying to make this as a... You know, we wouldn't be able to run it effectively as a sheep farmer unless we employed somebody who knew about sheep, but we're not doing that. But it, it was really driven just by a real desire to try and make a difference, make a change, actually try and achieve, you know, some sort of landscape scale, the beginning of a landscape scale change. And a big part as well for both of us and has been about trying to educate ourselves which we have done mm-hmm. you know quite substantially but also other people you know to try and engage with other people and explain why this is a good idea and you know what we're trying to achieve for the benefit of you know people mm-hmm. in nature and people you know to try and integrate it more so 
And, you know, people say, oh, but, you know, when we're farming, and I say, well, we are farming, but we're farming biodiversity and carbon. Yeah. You know, there, there were these ecosystem services that Catherine hates but the I phrase. But I hate the term. But, yeah. but, but, you know, I think it's an understood term. You know, all of these various, you know, these various elements, so water quality, water flow, you know, yeah. the hydrology. So something we, you know, we've often talked about is, you know, with re-wetting the peatlands, holding the water back so yeah. it doesn't actually flood. You know, we are potentially providing about 25% of the water down into the mm. next next river system, which if we can hold some of it back and manage it differently, that could affect flooding. There's obviously the water quality issue as well, which is in some, obviously really important, but our water isn't used for drinking water mm. you know, locally. That's only here. Um, but, but then there's these are all outputs, and we'll come back to. Oh, that. sorry, these I'm, are the, I'm just really interested yeah. to what makes what makes somebody step off the cliff and spend a lot of money <laughs> buying a yeah. length of Yorkshire. This then going to bring them heartaching costs because <laughs> um, that's what you've done. I've spoken to lots of farmers who own land. They were born yeah. into farming. They've been yeah. farming all their lives, or conservationists who stepped off the cliff and done something different. Mm. But but yeah, you're you're. Not unique, but you're interesting because you're you're a couple who've come from somewhere else with different backgrounds and decided to do something well, th- at scale. Well, for me, it was a real desire to actually get involved, do something, and do something. Yeah, yeah I'm, and I am a bit of a doer, and you know, quite impatient. Um, uh, maybe not unlike you, but, um, <laughs> so, yep. and you know, I just really wanted to see something that we could actually affect some change. You know, at a point where hopefully we would actually see some of that yeah, change, yeah. and uh, and I think we, yeah, we've we've been involved with various environmental charities. We've been involved in various, and Catherine through her work, but various things where we're absolutely achieving something. Particularly for Catherine, actually, really doing something very hands on. In a different way, but I just really felt we wanted to do something physical that we actually could show the output. Um, yeah, and I think just on a more personal level, um, on you know, I, I moved into the non profit sector, environment sector in uh, 2014, mm-hmm. and I've uh, done a lot of work with Synchronicity Earth, I'm a trustee there. Uh, they fund biodiversity conservation outside the UK, and as Part of everything I've done with them, I spent a lot of time meeting people who work in some amazing places in the world that are really under pressure, mm. uh, where we're losing so much. Reading lots of reports that are very depressing mm-hmm. about the state of nature here, the state of nature all over the world, the state of our oceans, the state mm. of our rivers. And... You can't do that for a number of years and your view of life not ch- fundamentally change. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, it's like somebody well, has taken, you know, has, you know, that you've been seeing the world through a different lens and then suddenly you see it more clearly. Um, so when you walk, go for a walk, you know, we live um, in the South Downs, you go for a walk and you walk across a big wheat field and you cannot hear a bird mm. and there are no bees or, or butterflies. Mm. And suddenly you start realising that. And so it is like you start seeing the world through a different... And a lot of these areas that you mentioned, I mean, overseas, which are really degraded, I mean, the UK UK is is as degraded more so than all of them, in most Mm. cases. You know, as a a whole place, the UK has got a very degraded nature. 
So, you know, we need to do it here. We need to do it everywhere, but we really desperately need to do something more in the UK as well. With Synchronicity Earth. Last year it was three million okay. three million pounds worth of funding. Right. Uh, that went to um, mostly locally run organizations in, in South America, the Congo Basin and Southeast Asia. So the focus there is very much funding overlooked and underfunded issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that means going into regions that don't tend to get so much funding or into species conservation where those species aren't the charismatic ones we see on TV all the time. So we have an amphibian program mm. uh, because amphibians are actually the most threatened taxa species and they are just this amazing part of any ecosystem. They're a great barometer of the health of an ecosystem and they, you know, their populations are continuing to drop dramatically. Mm. But they don't get the focus of the tigers and lions and or elephants. Or red squirrels do. that we have in Cumbria. Or red yeah. squirrels, yeah. yeah. That, yeah, we, yeah have, but that we don't have here. Without frogs and toads, our ecosystems won't work. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, no, it's just you can't, you can't see all the threats that are happening all over the world and, yes, not change your view about life in general mm. Mm. but you're not just a conservationist are you because you also have these links and you you go to some interesting evenings with lots of other people talking about lots of other things yeah no i'm also chair of the environmental funders network uh, and that's where all the uh, foundations trusts um, individuals who philanthropically fund environmental organizations in the uk uh, get together, share information about what it is they're funding, who they fund. Uh, we bring in experts on different topics um, to talk about that, whether it's pollution, whether it's climate. Um, and it's a really interesting group because the group funds a wide range of issues and lots of different strategies. Mm. So some people fund policy work. How do we change regulation at a UK level or an EU level? How do you get movement at the UN? I mean, recently we had the UN High Seas Treaty that was agreed in New York in March, which is a huge landmark because for the first time there's a framework to be able to set up marine protected areas in the high seas. So Mm. that's the ocean, which is outside of national water, which is most of the ocean. Mm. And if we can't start protecting large areas of our ocean, our the whole system, ocean system, is under threat. Um, so, you know, policy work, really, really important. A lot of on-the-ground conservation, but a lot is also about trying to change hearts and minds. So it might be media campaigns that some people fund. Mm. Um, so it's a fascinating group to be part of, um, and it's amazing to see the myriad of strategies you need to bring about shifts Um, whether it's in um, government policy or general, uh, you know, just how populations react to things. Mm -hmm. Um, But it takes, like everything, there's no silver bullet. You have to do lots and lots of different strategies. So it's it's so I like the overlay of the different aspects of your work and time there because actually I mean you have the impetuous Tim and you have the much more thoughtful <laughs> Catherine who's also got bogged down not bogged down but engaged with lots of these different things and 
it's, it's, it's when all those things come together that we make things really happen and really, really spin, don't we? So, for example, with the food debate, that's something which is clearly, in terms of land management and food, they've they mm. clearly got lots of energy at the moment in terms of discussion. And then we have health and well-being on top of that. And sites like this are potentially very exciting in terms of how we bring all of those things into one space. Yeah, I mean, we will never be probably the biggest producer of food. Um, we have got, as we talked about, a small herd of cattle. We will be, we do produce beef. Um, but we're not going to be a mass producer of beef. Hmm. Um, having said that, I hope it's a place where people can come and just see what a landscape can be when you let it do its thing mm. and I think there is this huge issue about getting more people into the countryside for lots of different reasons um, you know well-being is a really important one so you might not major on food here but you've got some food production but you can do health and well-being can't you? Which we, and you can do education which we've already started at some mm. level so we've had various volunteer groups um, you know, you've been involved in some of these mm. um, with you know a bunch of lawyers who've you know come up from Manchester and Liverpool to spend some time on the site, um, you know, and they find it fascinating and really enjoyable. And we've had school groups as well, and we obviously we're engaged with um, a couple of universities doing mm. some of the research. Mm. So I think I think the engagement part is really important actually, and trying to make it a bit a little bit more accessible as well to make it a bit easier to get around because it's quite a challenging landscape. I mean. You're obviously really used to it, so for you it's like going for a walk in the garden, mm. but um, you know, it is hard work walking around here and it's hilly and it's quite... Well, if you're used to pavements, it's, it's, then it's a hard, it's quite it's a hard landscape, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And it's only going to get harder. But as it gets wetter, you're going to need full-on waders at some point. <laughs> so, so in your three years, you've, you've not been idle, have you, in your first three years here? So, so March... 2020. We're now we're now April 23. So you've yeah, been three it is three three full years. Yeah. So you've employed yeah. somebody to look after it for you. Yep. Yeah. Fabulous manager. Fabulous mm -hmm. manager. Um, who's an environmentalist? I mean, yeah, he came to us not as a farmer farmer. I mean, he's dealt with livestock and he deals with animals, but he is a an environmentalist at core. Yeah. Um, you've also invested heavily in peat restoration, and I do want to get to that. Yeah. I know you're keen yeah. to talk about that. So am I. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you, that's a major project. James learned how to do walling. Yeah, um, he's turning into a good waller, which uh, is a very necessary component. Yeah. A Amy, Amy, who's who married Jamie last year, I think. Yeah, that's right. She's into her cattle and soils. Yeah, well, she actually works for the Soil Association. Um, she was working for the Animal Health um, Welfare Group until about a year and a half ago. So she now works for the Soil Association, which is great for her actually because she's able to visit lots of our neighbouring farms. Yeah. And lots of them actually, not that neighbouring, but I mean in a very wide area. So she's got a wealth of experience in both the animal welfare part, but also the soil structure and soil health. Yeah. So you've got a fantastic home team. There's, yeah. there's the four of you, and then there's the advisors who've been helping you, and yeah. people like Mike Douglas, Claire Cornish. Claire's yeah. been here talking about wildflowers. Yeah. Mike's been doing bird surveys and kick sampling with Tamsin in the river. Yeah. Uh, we've had the butterfly conservation. Butterflies, bats, we've done bat surveys. I mean, Sally Hempsall, you mentioned earlier, actually, who, when we first got the place, we didn't, have, when we'd taken the sheep off, um, Sally brought her cattle over. So we practised with hers. Yeah. Um, she was very, she's been great, actually, and very helpful and gracious about the way she's helped us get going with the cattle. Um, 
and Jamie and her actually still, you know, help each other out of, yeah, as, as and when necessary. And you've started to make links externally, so there's those links with Sally and with Ingleborough and the yeah. Natural England's team up at Ingleborough. But that's, a, I suppose, part of our, yeah, sort of going forward in terms of environmental schemes. We're not in an agro-environment scheme directly at the moment. We, it's not completely accurate, but we're not in a large one. We were a part of a, um, an HLS high-level stewardship scheme up until it expired after a year after we bought, but we're no longer in a Natural England mm. scheme. We are getting money from um, the Yorkshire Dales National Park through FIPL, Farming and Protected Landscapes, yeah. um, which has been a really welcome source of funds to help us get through. Um, but also as part of the greater engagement with the Yorkshire Wildlife Trust, Yorkshire Peat Partnership, which I guess we'll talk about, and Natural England, you know, some of our, our near nearby sites, we've recently entered into one of the 22 in the country, 22 environmental land management scheme mm-hmm. project pilots. So I think we're one of the biggest and the most complicated because we've got 10 different land owners mm-hmm. um, with contiguous land across for the benefit of certain species. So, so yeah, that's happen. the Three Dales project. So it's yeah. Kingsdale... Chapel of Dale and Ribblesdale, right. that the land spreads over yeah. uh, almost around two and a half thousand hectares currently. Well, three and a half with the extra land footing. Well, if well, we're splitting hairs there, Tim, it's, it's, oh, yeah. it's yeah. big. <laughs> yeah, and we're at the start of a two year process of developing our long term management plan. Mm. Um, and most of that is upland land. Mm. Um, there are some lovely meadows actually that. that um, a part of it uh, and some woodland but it's mostly upland a lot of moorland mm. so it's exciting to be part of that and just I'm just ticking off the things you've yeah. already done before we get somewhere else <laughs> the peat restoration and that's really that's, that's the biggie for you isn't it that, that was a significant project yeah so as we said two thirds of the land is peat and probably at some point in the 70s and 80s, um, subsidies were around to basically drain peat, drain peat so mm. to make it better for sheep grazing. So we have channels dug through our peat across the whole land. But put it into context, I mean, we've got, we've obviously had to do surveys, um, feasibility studies to actually measure all of the existing peat uh, here and therefore it's equivalent carbon. We've got about three million tons of carbon um, stored on the site. Right. Get, and but across that thousand acres, there were sixty kilometres of drains. So I, I think it just helps to put it into you know the amount of the you know, the the amount of drainage that we had. Yeah. Some yeah. of it was large. Some of it was small. Some yeah. of it had slightly overgrown, but the drains were still underneath. Um, so it's a, it was a pretty big thing, which is obviously all dragging through, you know, through mm-hmm. erosion, through water. It's taking the peatland away and emitting a lot of carbon. So Angela and I were here in that first winter, uh, <laughs> staying in the cottage, and I can tell you all those drains are connecting. There's water <laughs> in all of them. It was pouring off the fields at very high it speed. Was, yeah. mm-hmm. um, but now you've blocked all those. Well, bits. we were, yes, we... Um, we're very pleased to be part of a bid that Yorkshire Peat Partnership put in to mm. the Nature for Climate Fund. It's the Great North Bog Initiative. Yep. Great name. Love the bog. We love the bog t-shirts coming out. Yeah. <laughs> and so we were able to, they were able to um, manage the restoration last summer. And so that involves putting lots and lots of dams of different types 
in all of those uh, gullies. And so it was interesting to see that happen. Most of them in on our land are stone dams. Mm -hmm. um, which has The stone goes in the bigger, deeper ones, doesn't it? Yeah. In the hole. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Bigger, steeper as well. The steeper, steeper ones. Okay. Yeah, so where there's more energy in the water, you need more weight okay. to stop it. Yeah. yeah, and because of the nature of our land, you can't get lorries or anything up mm -hmm. over the peat. So it involves helicopters coming in and dropping them. And we had questions about is that really a good thing environmentally? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But actually, Yorkshire Peat Partnership had done studies to show that actually the net carbon benefits are still enormous, despite the fact you use helicopters right. for a period. Well, it's paid off in about a year, that deficit as such, but it's also much great, much much better for the land because you're not tracking very heavy amounts of rock. Mm. I mean, I've got a picture of you next to that massive, you know, one, of, one of our massive piles of mm. um, rock that was delivered into the site. For, you know, so we're tracking all that back up and down the hill all the time would have created a lot of damage to the piece in different ways as well. Mm. Um, so that's a huge restoration project, and that's a massive tick, which I, I'm, I'm yeah. really chuffed that we've been part of, really. But re-wetting the peat, so restoring the hydrology by stopping that drainage, allowing the peat to, to, to start to form again, as opposed to losing it. Yeah. Sheep aren't there anymore. The cattle seem to not want to be there. So we have the potential at the top of Kingsdale, for the first time in centuries, to restore bog habitats and to have a nice wet yeah. type of thing. Thinking about, um, I mean, I'm glad you raised the, the thing about the, 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 the total carbon thing because it looks horrifying having this massive helicopter. Absolutely. Moving yeah. stuff all over the place. Um, but if the maths has been done on that, that's great. Um, the other thing I'm, I'm really deeply concerned about, as, as I know you are, is climate change and how the uplands, um, how resilient they are at the moment to climate change and how we make them more resilient. And... One obvious thing is to re-wet the bogs. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's... We, we know from lots of studies in science that you have a landscape with more species diversity in it and it has a greater ability to adapt. There are certain species that can adapt. Mm -hmm. You Once you start taking species out, your options, your options just reduce. So... Basically, we want landscapes with more diversity in them. We, we need them to be able to adapt because climate change is happening. Um, and so we know our weather systems are changing. So it's already happening. Um, you know, we are high up. Uh, we've got a big gradient. Species can migrate across a gradient. Um, but we still need to get more resilience in our landscapes. And, yeah, in terms of the bog habitat, we're really upland bog, cooler, we're on the wet side of the country. Mm. Hopefully, even with climate change, those bog habitats are still going to be able to survive. Um, but, yeah, the sooner we wet them, the sooner we get the water table back up again and start getting all the different plant species and sphagnum species that should be there, the better. And once that bog starts building again, it's a climate-friendly outcome because it starts to store carbon it stores carbon it stores water as well i mean yeah. temporarily but yeah. i mean if it stores water it stores carbon it creates a greater habitat i had a i can't remember who gave it to me actually the analogy and it might have been you but it might have been somebody else was looking at the growth on top of the bog as like a little mini rainforest right because yeah. it might have been yeah. you i can't remember but uh, yeah it, 
when you put into context, I mean, it, you know, peat bogs are a fantastic carbon soil, like a rainforest, you yeah. know, as as good as. Um, and do you think of that? You know, the the you know, the the gradient of different heights of different plants. You know, there is quite a lot of change within that, and a lot of that had been had gone, or had been severely reduced because of the amount of grazing. So now you've got this sort of you know this different to the levels and strata coming through. Um, so it is a really great thing for yeah. yeah the environment, in one level, but also you know particularly for the biodiversity because you then create different habitats for different species again. We talk about structure a lot. Yeah, the structure is often in in these upland settings, and particularly with this, under a sheep based habitat, you very have uh, very rarely have full structure. That's right. Yeah. You have a very limited height and and change within that, that that context. The more structure you bring in, the more it works for lots of things. Yeah. It comes to function very well. Um, the other big thing in my mind is also temperature of water. Yes. So one thing which has really cropped up a lot in the work we've done with the rivers trusts in terms of river restoration things is, is in a climate scenario that we've got already, we're getting to a point where water coming off the fells is too hot to support salmonids. Yeah. So in the context of Kingsdale Head, how are you dealing with that? Well, I, I mean, you can ask that, but as you know, we did, you know, through electrofishing to actually find out what we've got here. And we've got a population of brown a couple of populations of brown trout which are pretty isolated from downstream because we're in a limestone area beneath our river doesn't really connect you know downstream directly over overland anyway it goes under it goes under the ground at times of low water low low water runoff um but the temperature is interesting isn't it You'd... yeah no last summer which was obviously a record hot yeah. summer yeah. yeah um we recorded or Jamie recorded temperatures up to 20, 21 degrees in the water, which is life-threatening for mm. fish. But as one of the things you talked about when we initially walked across here was the fact that all of our streams are pretty much devoid of shade. Mm. We have a few small areas of woodland where they obviously do have shade and they have all the things that come with being surrounded by trees and shrubs. But most of it is just open open yeah and, and so yeah so those shaded areas that provide feed for us oh, yeah, to one type of shading from sun and and from winter i guess as well but i mean to also to you know, the detritus that goes into the streams so I mean, one of our things here we talk about beavers you know mm. be great to have beavers here we mm. don't have any enough there's no, there's no food for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, but you know, so hopefully, you know, maybe in our lifetime there'll yeah. be enough that you know there may even be beavers back at Kingsdale. Um, you know, yeah. we'll see, we'll see. But the wood and grant schemes we mentioned earlier that have been planted along the gills, you know, I mean, they that's where they've been, but they've been you know, mixed success. Mm. But as they have, they'll begin in longer term to actually start providing shelter, mm. and that should then to have in, you know, hugely improve the condition of those breeding grounds. So one of the things which, which was hilarious when, when I remember when we were early early in our journey here, we had um, we found a fish, didn't we? Yes, you. Yeah, you tickled a fish. We tickled a trout, yeah. and it must have been about four hundred and fifty meters above sea level. Yeah, in the back, and it was an amazingly. I mean, it wasn't a big fish. It wouldn't have you made sound much like a fisherman, Pete. You sound, <laughs> you sound like a... Well, yeah, it was this big. Just for the record, he's got his arms sort of, yeah, <laughs> out as far as they'll go. <laughs> but to find a trout in a stream like that at the altitude that we found it, and, and it's so it's such a difficult stream to imagine a trout being in yeah. because it's yeah. so higgledy piggledy and high and difficult access. I think you were quite gobsmacked to find yeah. a fish of that size where we found it. 
Oh, completely. Because I think of a, you know, a trout river as as a wide river that always has, you know, a certain depth. The itchin or something. Well, I think of the chalk streams. Yeah, chalk streams. Yeah, whereas ours are real spate streams, you know, and in summer when... There's very little, it's pools, yeah. Yeah, if you have a dry spell, yeah, they become pools. Um, and then when you have a lot of rain, they just, the rivers rise. And actually, I mean, this is for me, it's been one of the interesting experiences. You know, the noise of a, a mm. river at full spate mm. here is astonishing. Mm. And it happens so fast. It happens yeah. in a matter of hours. And then a few hours later, it's back down to normal levels. And so, yeah, the idea that there were trout that managed to survive in these environments. Um, was amazing. And they're likely to be quite unique genetically yes. as well. Yeah. Mm. And you've got crayfish here too. Sorry, you haven't um, got... No, we, we haven't, haven't got... got no, no, we're out of crayfish. No, but okay. we potentially... They're a very likely reintroduction. Well, right. the good news is we have none of the invasives as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we could reintroduce native crayfish. So we, have, we definitely have trout. That's great. Mm. Um, so all the more imperative to put some shade over those streams yeah. and to put some leaf litter back into those streams to preserve what you've already got, mm. even before we think about what next. So it, it, all this stuff becomes critical. I'm interested about the speed of your rivers mm. coming up because you are in limestone, so there's going to be lots of water down, down that we don't see, yeah. and that's going to go up and down. Actually, we should see, because of the peat restoration, a slowing down of the spatiness of the river, yeah. all being well. And We're that, hoping so because it'll be more. There'll be more sponge effect yeah. in the peat, um, but I suppose yeah, that's one of the things which it'll be interesting to see how that does actually happen. Well, the work was done last summer, so this is the first winter we've been through, and I think well, there's definitely we are we are having measurement surveys being done, but there's definitely circumstantial evidence as well from walking across it. That it does seem wetter. Right. And actually, our one vehicle, we don't really, we tend to walk places. And Jamie, I mean, I should say really largely for Jamie's, but we are going up and down all the time to make sure for the perimeter, for the cattle, for mm. whatever. We have got we have got a quad bike, and now there are far more areas where the quad bike can't go, can't go. which is great. Because yeah. that tells us that we're getting to, you know, it is wetting quite a lot. I'll put it like this, Jamie gets the quad bike stuck more often. So, in order to sort of, Bring our conversation sort of more to a conclusion, really. Um, I, I, for me, there's, there's there's so much in there. Um, I'm wondering what 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 would you say you've learned most out of this project so far in, in all of the project, not just about the nature, but about just the whole thing. And what would be your ask of government as a response to what you've learned in the last three years? Oh gosh, there's a lot. Um, what have we learned? Well, um, we've learned that it's it's great to have the network that we've been able to to build up of people who bring in all different aspects of expertise. I mean, it's one of the joys of doing this is that people who love nature are often so generous with their time mm. and expertise. Mm. And we've had so much time from people and so much goodwill and so much, you know, input um, that's been incredibly valuable. And enjoyable. We've met some great people through this. But things will go wrong. 
And I think a lot of government money is incredibly prescriptive. Mm. I mean, literally, you're managing, you know, relatively short timelines, definitely annual periods. You've got to do certain things at a certain time. Um, I think we've got to step back a bit and get a bit more flexibility in terms of how um, well, when you say things, funding Well, when you say things works. go wrong, they're not necessarily going wrong. They're just not going as prescribed, I think, as the... Well, you've well, also mentioned yeah. that. 30-year period, you've got births, <laughs> deaths, marriages, yeah. divorces. Yeah, absolutely. Freeholds yeah. may be the same, but you're going to have tenancy changes. You're going to have, you're going to have succession within farming families. You're going to have perhaps farming families giving up and moving... I mean... 30 years is a long time. Yeah, change of opinion, yeah, change of is. practice. Yeah. Um, but we've got to therefore, I think, have a more flexible approach to government funding. And absolutely, it's public money for public good. So you need to be able to demonstrate ultimately that you are producing benefits. But I think within that, we have to have a way of managing grants that is a bit more flexible. Um, because... Nobody knows in 30 years what the current landscape we're potentially planning is really going to look like. Um, but we have, but if anything, government money should be there to actually take a bit of a flyer, take a bit of a risk well, on the it government and money see can what can be achieved. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's going to be a really interesting process because it's going to be a combination of government money and private funding. And can we get the balance right? Can we really get that combination to support landowners to do something completely different for a period of 30 years? That should then produce very different outcomes. We're going to leave it there because I sense we could go on for another hour or two. Catherine and Tim, thanks very much indeed for talking to me this morning. It's a fantastic project. You want people here to experience it and... You've got a website, people can stay in the holiday cottage. Um, I've heard. I've heard. <laughs> I do think people should come and see it. So thank you very much indeed for your time. Having worked with Tim and Catherine very closely on that project over the last three years, um, I've got to know them and we've got to really experience lots of learning and lots of different views as well in that time. I enjoyed the interview, but it's a site that I love to bits, so um, I'm very happy spending time there. So I enjoyed the interview. I hope you did too. That's it for this series of 10 programmes. We will have some more coming up later in the year. We're just putting those together at the moment. My journey in conservation has been 30 years long. I have met so many people, seen so many fantastic things happen in that, in that time. And actually, I've seen a ramping up of people's concern for the environment and actions to try and support it in that time as well. And I hope uh, meeting some of the people with me in this journey has helped you to think, actually, there is some hope out there. There are some really positive things going on. And they're not all about conservation per se. There's lots of people who are commercially minded farmers who have different management of land in the back of their minds, but they are doing something for nature. There is some hope out there. And if we work collectively and sensibly, we can get some good things for nature out of it and for people. So series two will be coming up. Please do tune in. Thank you very much for your time so far. Great. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to the Tree Apple podcast. Written and produced by myself, Pete Leeson. 
My special thanks go to Pete Ord for his awesome production and mixing skills. And actually, Pete and Pete, both of us, we wrote the music, so thanks very much to Pete for his input there. The recording was on location with mixing and production at the studio at Sunbeams, part of the Annie Mawson Sunbeams Music Trust. Thanks also to all those lovely people who were interviewed, Simon Wakefield for the artwork, and my special thanks go to those who gave me the confidence and support to make this happen. Angela, Anne, Catherine, Tim, Tim, Kevin, Emma, Nick and Paul, thank you. 